So I'm just going to get right into it. So before we hop into the text, let's rehash what we've learned so far from Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the most Jewish books in the New Testament. Though Gentiles like you and I can understand it, it wouldn't really make sense unless it was read amongst those who were of the nation of Israel. The author of whom is not known to this day doesn't matter because ultimately the Holy Spirit did inspire him to write it down. In nearly every, uh, every verse of this book, the author is referencing Old Testament scriptures. Whether it be the Pentateuch, that is the five, first five books of the Old Testament, the chronological books, which is the first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, the wisdom literature like Psalms, or even the prophetic literature like the book of Isaiah. The author is constantly calling these things to mind. He is also making it known that Christianity not only stems out of Judaism, but it's better than Judaism. In chapters 1 through 4, the author shows us that Jesus is better than angels. I hope it's not big enough. <laughs> he goes on to tell us that we as believers have a greater salvation and a greater Savior, and that our Lord is not just greater than the angels, but ultimately he's even greater than Moses. Then in chapter 4, we are shown that we as New Testament believers enter the very rest that was promised to Israel. In chapters 5 through 7, the author shows us that Jesus, like Melchizedek, having neither beginning nor end, is a better high priest because he never dies. Then in chapters 8 through 10, we are shown again that we have a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. The things that are so highly emphasized in the Old Testament, the author lets us know that these things are merely shadows, or you could say foreshadowings of the things that are come to us, that are, yeah, the things that have come to us that are now Christians. As we begin to approach chapter 11, we see in chapter 10, the fourth warning of six, that the author tells us, or tells the Jews, to not fall back during hard times. He wants them to come all the way into Christianity and to stop wavering on the issue. At the end of this fourth warning, he gives the readers a word of exhortation from a combination between Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2. So if you're not there, turn to Hebrews 11, and just before Hebrews 11, uh, starting in verse 37 of chapter 10, we'll start reading. For yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Sound familiar yet? And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure, has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And there it is the springboard by which the author of, Hebrews, author of Hebrews wrote chapter 11. So let's get caught up in chapter 11 of this rich, rich book. So chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things unseen. Andrew explained what faith is and how it works in believers' lives. Verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Josh got to explain how Abel had 
faith and his brother didn't. So he murdered him for it. Verse, verse, uh, yeah, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up. You remember how John didn't even know who Enoch was? And then he showed us how Enoch's righteous life was an example for us all. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, constructed an ark. This is where Levi showed us that the, the life of Noah and how he, had been, he may have been laughed at or even mocked, he still walked his faith out and finished the ark. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to the place that he should receive as an inheritance. Remember how Ben brought us from all these world-changing events? The creation, the fall, the flood, and then even to the Tower of Babel. And he brings us from all these big events. And he shows us how Scripture just hones in on one man and his life. By faith, or and then chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses. Now I hope you remember this one. It was only last week. Noah exposed how Moses' parents even had faith in this passage and then went on to show us how Moses lived and how we as believers ought to live in light of that. Now I say these things not just for your sake, or not just for the sake of context, but also for your sake. This has been an amazing study so far, and I don't want this message to just be another message. Not that I have anything special to say. I just don't want us to be filled with more head knowledge. I want our lives to be gripped by the gospel of our God and to be more in awe of him as we see him portrayed not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. If we walk away from this whole study, the study of Hebrews 11, unchanged and only filled with more head knowledge, then it's all for naught. So before we go any further, I challenge you guys to take one thing away from this study this evening. I'm going to say a lot of stuff. But all I'm asking is that you guys take one thing. So let's hop into the text. Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith. Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, God, as we come to the text, Lord, may you expose the things that we need to apply to our lives. And God, may you give us the strength to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we, so as we have already seen in the immediate context, we're talking about Moses. But in verse 29, it makes, a broader, it makes a transition into a broader spectrum. By faith, the people. So no longer are we just talking about Moses, but the people. And so it's not just Moses' faith that's in, in focus. It's the people's faith that's in focus. And so before we go any further, I just even want to consider this. By faith, the people. The nation of Israel made it into the hall of faith. For those of you who read your Old Testament, can you believe that? 
the people who would only a few days later after crossing the Red Sea act as idol worshipers, making a golden calf and bowing before it. These people made it into Hebrews chapter 11. This nation of whom, when I read through the Old Testament, I look at with disgust so often. God wants us to know that these men and women had faith. This ought to be a sharp reminder for us. Though Israel may be blemished as she is, she is still God's chosen people. She still has faith. So before we are criticizing her for all of her faults, though they be many, remember, for those who believed in Israel, they're just like us. Spotless in the blood of the Lamb and precious in God's sight. But let's continue their story. After Israel crossed the Red Sea, one of the first things that started occurring was that God started feeding his people. They received manna every morning. And according to Exodus 16, manna looks flake-like. And so we could even say it kind of looked like cornflakes. And so Israel is fed cornflakes every morning. That's a pretty good breakfast. Then they go to Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments and the other various 603 laws that describe the tabernacle, that is the temple at that point, and the way offerings are to be made. Throughout their time in the wilderness, we see Israel complain time and time again, whether it be manna, that, that, whether it was the manna that they, that they had to eat day in and day out, or against Moses, who had to lead them out there. These people were constantly complaining against the Lord. And though he withstood it for a while, and would it, but eventually he would let it be known how displeased he was by either sending a, the snakes into the camp or even sending a plague. In the midst of this, the, peop, uh, the people did have victories. They fought a few battles against kings in the area and won a few, but also lost a few. Then in chapter 13 of Numbers, we, is, we see what would appear to be a glimmer of hope. The Lord says to Moses to spy out the land. That is the promised land. And to have the spies bring back a report about what they find. And so Moses sends them. The men return after 40 days, and guess what? They give them a bad report. The men were as giants, they said, and they felt as grasshoppers. They were scared out of, mind, out of their minds because of these people, and so they began to complain about this, too. And so again, the Lord punishes those who complained against him. Except this time, it was much more severe. He cut everyone over the age of 21 out of the plan to inherit the promised land. Except for Joshua and Caleb, because they were the only ones that said, what the Lord has given us, let us take. This punishment was so severe that the Lord said it wouldn't be enough for another 40 years until the people would get another chance to enter. And so they wandered. 40 years. Things kept happening and people died off. And eventually, Moses even was cut off from the promised land because he lost his temper due to Israel's obstinance. Eventually, after 40 years, Moses was the only one left in the age range of 21 years and older. And in Deuteronomy 34, he even dies. This marks a huge transition in the storyline of Israel's history because after the death of Moses, a new leader emerges, Joshua. 
So let's turn to Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book of the Old Testament. So you get to Deuteronomy, flip to the right. So Joshua is one of the two that 40 years earlier had believed God when he said that he had given them the land. And in the first chapter of Joshua, we see that the Lord not only commissions him as the new leader, but that he says to do the exact same task that he, was, that he did 40 years ago. Take the land. And so Joshua takes the people and camps them out seven miles east of the Jordan River, just outside the Promised Land. This is a place that, had been, that these people had been many times before with Moses, except this time things are different. The people had a new leader, and there's a much stronger resolve for them to serve the Lord. Joshua then sends two spies into the land to check it out. Joshua, let's look at Joshua 2.1. We see that Joshua says to the spies, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. You can hear something in Joshua's voice when he says, Especially Jericho. Jericho isn't going to be one of those city that's, cities that's easily overtaken. It's massively fortified, and Joshua knows it. Jericho is one of the most fortified outer cities in this land. It was a city on a hill, and it had two, well, not just one layer of wall, but two layers of wall. The outermost, which is six feet thick, and the innermost, which was 12 feet thick. It would be an impossible city to siege, and so the best tactic for most of its enemies wasn't just to attack it head on, but it was to circle around it and wait it out until the people had to give up due to starvation. And this could take months. And so for Israel, this became their testing grounds. So the spies are sent to the land, and, they try, and they're trying to stay hidden. The place that they choose to stay is as low-key as possible, a prostitute's house. The motive behind this is not at all impure, but rather is merely for good cover. I mean, who would think to look in a prostitute's house? Unfortunately, though, their cover is still blown. Let's pick it up in Joshua 2.1, the second half. We'll read through verse 7. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who, you have, who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men did come to me, but, did not, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where these men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them, on stock, uh, hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab hid the spies. Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, whose people were enemies of Israel, hid the spies. What she was doing was committing absolute treason against her own people. And she could have been killed for doing such a thing. 
These men were here to conquer the land and totally destroy the people of Jericho. But the reproach of her people was the last thing on her mind. We find that out in the following conversation. Let's keep going. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and, all that, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in, in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and, that all, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said, Our lives for your lives, or for our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell of our business, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was, on the, was built into the city wall, so that when she lived, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then, afterward, you may go your way. Rahab sent these spies, who were, not, who were her people's enemy, out so that they might not be caught. In verse 11, we see that the fear of the Lord had gripped Rahab so hard that she acknowledged that the God of Israel was the God of all. According to our passage in Hebrews 11, this act of protecting the spies was not done whimsically or out of fear what might happen if she didn't negotiate, but out of faith. Meaning, because she, because she did this out of faith, in order to act out of faith, she must have had faith prior to this event. To expound on this a little more, keep your finger here, and we're going to flip over to James 2. And if you're in Hebrews, if you have your finger there, just flip one book to the right. So James chapter 2. James is a very similar book to Hebrews in that it has an extremely Jewish feel to it. James was written to a church that was in desperate need of a little less talk and a lot more action. It was written because this church needs to start walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. And in James 2, we see the exact same thing being played out. James 2, starting in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that if a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
So starting in verse 21, Abraham was justified by works. Let me tell you what James is not saying. James is not saying Abraham, when he offered up Isaac, was seen righteous by God. Or that he would some, or somehow that God would claim him after doing this. Or that God loved him because he was about to sacrifice his son. This would be in direct opposition, not just the whole of Scripture, but even to James himself. In chapter 1, verse 18 of James, he makes it clear that men and women are born, that are born of God are not just born by their own will, but by the will of God meaning that they're dependent on God for their salvation. It's not our own efforts that make us acceptable to God, but God's efforts that make us acceptable to him. So let us dispel this idea that men first need to do something before being accepted by God. That's not what James is teaching here. Rather, when you hear the word justified in this context of James, think proven before men. Or, if you know technical words, vindicated. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I see two phrases that are sticking out to me. Faith was completed and scripture was fulfilled. These two, idea, or these two phrases carry an idea of being made full, don't they? They make me think of, make me think of things coming full circle, or having a more complete picture. I'm just going to leave that thought with you for a little bit, and we'll come back to it. In verse 23, we see that Abraham was, Abraham believed God. I've got a question. When did this occur? When does it say Abraham believed God? This occurs in Genesis 15. This is where we would say Abraham was saved or that he even became a Christian. So I've got another question. Where in the Bible does Abraham go to sacrifice Isaac? Genesis 22. How big of a gap lies between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? Conservative estimates, 30 to 40 years. So coming back to that thought, when James says that Scripture was fulfilled we often think of prophecy when we hear that word fulfilled, but that's not what he's talking about. He is saying that we get a fuller picture of Genesis 15 when it says that Abraham believed God, when you read Genesis 22 when it says Abraham offered his son Isaac. And in the same way, when it says here in James that Abraham's faith was completed, He's telling us that after those 40 years, we see that Abraham's faith was real. It was so real that Abraham was willing to offer up his one and only son based on the fact that as Hebrews 11.15 says, he believed God was able to raise him from the dead. In essence, Abraham was justified. He was proven before men when he showed that his faith was real by offering up his son on the altar. He demonstrated before everyone that he believed God even after 40 years. And now we, and now we see the, the fulfilled picture, the completed picture of what is meant when it says Abraham believed God. 
in Genesis 15. Verse 25. And in the same way was not, Abraham, or was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In the same way. When Israel crossed the Red Sea and defeated the two kings of the Amorites, it sent such a fear across the land that as soon as the people heard it, it says that their hearts melted and that there was no spirit left in them. I do not know exactly where Rahab was converted in all of this. It may have been initially in Numbers 13 or even potentially just a few days before these despises came in. Either way, we know that this was a, the call to repentance was clear. Because in our passage, Hebrews 11.31, we see that Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient. Being that we know that salvation is not merely an offer, but a command, as it says in Acts 17.30. To not repent is to disobey. As with Rahab, if there's enough information for her to know to repent, then there was enough information for her entire people to know to repent. Because they were disobedient, therefore they were disobedient because they knew that God was calling them to repent. But but Rahab proved her faith by welcoming, welcoming the spies into her house. On a side note, God never commended her lying when those servants came and she said, oh, they went that way. In fact, when men who lied that actually claim to have faith, like Abraham, God comes down on them pretty hard. So let's not use Rahab's example as an excuse for lying. In this instance, God did use a crooked stick to make a straight path. On another side note, does not Rahab's faith prove to us that the sacrificial system does not save people? If it was animal sacrifices that saved people in the Old Testament, According to that presupposition, Rahab would not have been a believer at this point. She would have never sacrificed an animal to according to Jewish law by now because, you know what? She didn't know Jewish law by now. She would not have acted in faith because, or she would not have been able to act in faith because she would not have had faith. According to James 2 and Hebrews 11, she was a believer. And this only affirms what she says in Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It has been and always will be by grace through faith that we are saved. And thus the name of the series, Same Old Faith. It was, saved, it was faith that saved people back then and it is faith that will save people now. So turning back to Joshua 2, we see that Rahab acts in faith because she already has faith and saves the spies because in return, the, people, the, the spies make a promise to her to not to, come, to destroy the city. In verse 18, it says, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's house. Don't you find this fitting? 
scarlet, the color of blood, the scarlet cord out Rahab's window. Just as the Israelites protected themselves from the angel of death by putting blood over their doors, that the angel might not kill their firstborn, so Rahab puts a scarlet cord outside her window that her and her family might not be crushed. We could even say this is a picture of what Jesus' blood does for us. God's judgment passes over us. So as the story progresses, we see in chapter 3, after the spies return to Joshua, that the people cross the Jordan, another miraculous event. The people send the ark before them into the river, and the waters are cut off. In chapter 4, then the people cross the river and set up stones of remembrance. In chapter 5, they set up camp and all the men are circumcised as a sign that they are God's chosen people. The people then eat the first fruits of the land after crossing the Jordan and the manna that they had been eating for 40 years ceases. They had arrived and God was fulfilling his promises to his people. What an affirmation that they were truly his. And then, just before the battle begins, God sends his, com- sends his commander of his armies to meet with Joshua and to show him with sword drawn that he would have victory over the Canaanites and Jericho. If you guys know the book of Revelation, you know that this wasn't just any ordinary angel. You know that the commander of God's armies is Jesus Christ. And that, this pre, and that this angel is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And he meets with Joshua and confirms the victory that he is to have. Can you sense the anticipation going on? God is confirming time and time again that in these last few chapters of Joshua that Israel is his people. And it is so timely because they're about to face one of the biggest things since their old leader, Moses, has fallen. Israel had seen Jericho multiple times before. They had encamped on the opposite side of the river, longing to possess the land that the, the, the city protected. They had heard about its walls and how it was absolutely unbreachable. They may have been even thinking about the last time they even tried to enter, and they were defeated and chased off. But this time things were different, weren't they? They knew that they were walking with God and they were confident in their leader. We see at the end of chapter 1 that they say to Joshua, all that you have commanded us to do, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, Joshua, Whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This time, Israel had faith. Let's look at Joshua 6.1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out and outside because the people of Israel, none, of, none went out and none came in. Jericho 
was ready for a siege. Jericho was ready for an all-out war. Jericho had no idea what was coming. In the next few verses, we see how God wants this city to fall. He, says to, he doesn't say to Joshua, Joshua, you're going to take this thing head on. Nor does he say, Joshua, you're going to have to wait this one out. Those walls are too thick. You're going to have to starve them. But what does he say? Verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city at once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And after this, Joshua tells that to the people. What did they do? How did they respond? Well, they obeyed. Look at verse 9. The men, armed men, were walking before the priests. Day one. All the men marched around the city. No one says a peep, peep, but the trumpets are continually blowing as they march. Day two, same thing. And this keeps going until day seven. On day seven, the men march around the city, not just one time, but seven times. On the seventh time, Joshua has not just the men of war, but the entire people of Israel give one huge shout. Let's look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The walls of Jericho fell down. The impenetrable city looked more like a sandcastle. This city had met its match. God. On that day, the nation of Israel had faith. They may have felt like fools walking around that city every day for an entire week as those trumpets kept blaring in their ear. But you know what? They put faith in God and they did it. This, this is not something that Israel would have normally been able to accomplish. They would have normally, right off the bat, as we see in Numbers 44, complained against both God and their new, Josh, or their new leader, Joshua. But not this time. The only way they could have ever accomplished such a ludicrous idea that marching around a city would somehow destroy it would have been by having faith. And that's why Hebrews cites this as one of the most pivotal times in Israel's history that they really walked by faith. So I got a question. Whatever happened to Rahab in this story? Check out verse 24. After they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver 
and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all that belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she had hidden the messengers whom Joshua sent out or sent to spy out Jericho. It's a happy ending. Because Rahab trusted God, she was kept alive and spared from judgment. She became a Jewish proselyte, which is what you call a Gentile when they convert to Judaism. But that's not where the story ends. She even marries a man named Salmon. And if that's not good enough, they even bear a child. Guess what his name is? Boaz. Boaz. The kinsman redeemer to Ruth. Who fathered Obed? Who fathered Jesse? Who fathered none other than King David? If you have not caught on yet, Rahab the prostitute is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God did not just save her for her own sake. He had this plan since the beginning of time that he would redeem mankind and bring forth the coming Messiah through her offspring. God has chosen kings. He has chosen prophets. He has chosen many, 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 many mighty men of war. But this time, God chose the Gentile harlot to bring about salvation for all of mankind. Our God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? He chooses the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Oh, the depth of the riches and knowledge, <laughs> riches and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. What a great God we serve. So now I have a few questions for you guys. Will you guys take steps of faith when you're scared? Will you, just as Rahab welcomed the spies, though she was risking her life, choose to be faithful rather than to be safe? God never promises to keep us out of harm's way. But what he does promise is that he'll walk through it with us. Rahab could have never known the impact that she would have on billions of people's lives down through history just because she acted faithfully once. And now let's look at the example of Israel's example at Jericho. Will you, cho will you choose to take steps of faithfulness even when you may look foolish? Will you say, God, why am I doing this? Or as when the army marched around the city, walk in humble obedience. Though we may look like fools in the, in the world's sight, we know the truth. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So with that, I'll ask the worship band to come up and I'll pray for us.
Dear Lord, we just want to take into consideration your word. God, in the examples you've lined out in Scripture, God, of Israel's faith and of Rahab's faith, Lord, may we follow them. God, they may have looked like fools. God, they may have been scared. They may have been risking their own lives. But God, by faith, God, you will cause us to walk in humble obedience. God, may we be faithful in that. Lord, I pray, God, that you would uh, just help us apply these truths to our heart. May we walk in light of the truths we've learned. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.